you. Thank you very much and welcome. I'm Father Mitch Packle. Welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. Now, our guest tonight is a very interesting person. He is the senior counsel and vice president of Appellant Advocacy for the Alliance Defending Freedom. This is the largest public interest law firm in the world. And they are dedicated to defending religious freedom, free speech, parental rights, marriage and family, and the right to life. And all of those areas are affected in one way or another by our contemporary culture's embrace of gender ideology, which these days is being brought, brought to bear on Christians by activists and their allies in the government and in the media who labeled the church's teaching on human sexuality and on our identity as sons and daughters of God as harmful and hateful. They like to call us haters. Our guest says that the best way to counter those arguments is through Christian love coupled with authentic compassion. So please welcome the author of the book, Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology, Mr. John J. Borsch. John, you, welcome. Good to have you here with Great us. Great to be here. You come down from Michigan, is that right? I do, that's yeah, right. Good to have you here, very much so. And, you know, this is something that you bring a very important uh, set of skills. Many of us have protested and walked in marches and, and such over the years, but you actually appear at the Supreme Court, at state legislatures, I assume, mm -hmm. state Supreme Courts, local courts, um, and you defend our rights by using the law which proclaims those rights. Is that correct? Fair that, summary? That's exactly right. And you know, what's important for people to understand is that the lawyers do have an important job because we keep the door open so that you can exercise those rights. Yes. But what we can't do, although we try sometimes, is to change the culture. And so what I do is to allow people like you and the folks in our audience to be able to speak freely, to be able to live their faith in their businesses and in the public square and not just keep it hidden at church or uh, at home. Uh, they have to be able to live it publicly. And so my job is to allow that freedom to happen, to flourish, so that others can take the church's message out into the world. I think some folks take freedom of speech for granted. Well, we've got freedom of speech. We can say what we want. But they don't exercise it. And they also take freedom of religion for granted, which is in our, the American Constitution, freedom of religion is even more basic than freedom of speech because it's concerned about what you believe in your heart, what you think in your mind, what you commit yourself to in principle. And before you speak, you have to have 
those principles. But people, again, take it for granted. And one of the points that I, I see in your book and in the work you've been doing is that the other side of these issues often tries to squelch freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of thought. And that's why it's important to stand up and fight for it. Absolutely, to stand up to fight for it, but then also to exercise it once the court yes. recognizes those yes. rights. And, and the whole idea of squelching or censoring speech and religious exercise is exactly the other side's strategy. Because if you sat down and you had a rational uh, debate about abortion, about when human life begins, mm -hmm. um, if you follow the science, there's, there's no other position that you could adopt other than that life begins at conception and that life is yeah. worthy of protection. And, and any uh, other position is completely arbitrary. Exactly. Not scientific. Right. And, and same thing with gender ideology. You can sit down and have a debate about that and whether you're doing it from uh, just common sense rationalization or you're approaching it from the science, which is fairly well established, especially around the world right now. Um, again, you would only come to one conclusion. And so for those who are pushing gender ideology in our schools and in our workplaces and on our kids, their only recourse is to try to squelch the other side from being able to speak about it at all. Um, and, and so that's why you have government officials going to social media to um, censor views and have people's accounts deleted if they disagree with the government's views on these things. Um, that's why in the schools you have secret policies where teachers and counselors are encouraged to ask young children, kindergarten, first grade, what their gender identity is and then help them transition if it's different than their sex, but to keep it secret from the parents, to hide it from them. You know, th that, that's the tactics they have to use because if you actually sat down and talked rationally about the issue, they don't have anything to stand on. And, and in fact, you know, we see that uh, some states even are trying to claim the authority to take children away from the custody of their parents if the parents do not support having gender uh, and so-called gender changing surgeries. Um, and that's, you know, so, so far no state has passed that, have they? Well, they, they haven't passed a law that requires that, but in mm -hmm. places like California, you've got members of their social services department, social workers and psychologists, who are asked to go out and check on kids that are alleged to have been neglected or abused. And those employees of the state government are starting to say that if, as parents, you are not affirming your child's gender identity and refusing to go along with a transition, that that's abuse or neglect, and that's a reason to take the kid away from you mm -hmm. and, and put them in foster care and maybe have them be adopted by someone else. And then even in the foster care and adoption systems, yes. uh, they're, they're now excluding applicants who won't swear at the very beginning that they will transition their child if they express a gender identity different than their sex. They're, they're just excluded at the, the front end. Even in states where they have thousands of kids in the foster system poorly in need of a permanent forever home, and uh, those parents who are unwilling to take that pledge are being excluded. Yeah, and, and it's not a law, but they can use regulations of, of sorts to, to take ch custody of children from their parents. Yes, and, and there's plenty of, of bad laws on the books, you know, laws that require even 
um, religious employers, sometimes even churches, to engage in hiring and speech and service activities um, that violate their, their conscience. But so much of what's happening today is kind of done through the deep state, where you have bureaucratic officials at the federal level and the state level issuing regulations, issuing policies, or just acting in a particular mm -hmm. way. Um, and, and so it goes much deeper than just the law itself. Yeah. And this is where uh, uh, there are two things. One, you work through the legal system to protect the individuals from these encroachments by the state. And you also write about this. Um, let's talk a bit about your book, mm -hmm. you know, and what you're doing here, because I think they, they, they go hand in glove. What you're doing in court and what you're writing about go hand in glove. Uh, if I understand it correctly. Absolutely. Yeah. One, one of the first points that you make in your book is there's a problem with people being willing to be, um, you know, so open-minded. They don't accept that there is absolute truth, that there's objective truth. Uh, and this is a, a, a very early part of the problem about accepting that a baby is human or that uh, a male is male and female female. Yeah, you wouldn't think that a book about the church and gender ideology would be talking about moral relativism, but that seemed like the natural first chapter because if you can't get that right, it's impossible to have any of the conversation around the subsequent chapters. And you're probably aware um, that Pope Benedict uh, many years ago was mm -hmm. asked, what is the most critical issue facing the world today? Mm -hmm. And he did not say abortion. He did not say people failing to go to mass. He did not say loss of faith in the true presence in the Eucharist uh, or any of those things. Uh, instead, what he said was, moral relativism. And in the United States, if you look at young people, high school, right up through college, 90% of them hold a moral relativistic worldview, where what's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you, but there is no such thing as objective truth. Right. And, and young people today like that viewpoint because then they never are in a position where they have to criticize someone else, where they might hurt their feelings because they disagree with the view that they're holding. They can say, oh, well, I believe that life begins at conception, but if you believe that abortion is okay and that you can get one, um, that's true for you, and so I don't have to be critical of you for doing that, and then there's no tension uh, in our relationship. Uh, but without that objective truth, then all the important issues, things like abortion and things like gender ideology, about the understanding of marriage, about whether there's a God, what our purpose is here on earth, all the big questions, they just become merely personal opinion instead of something that you can rationally dialogue and debate and explore as you try to reach the objective truth. And so it's really important that we press that point before we even jump into discussing gender ideology. Yeah, I, I think that that's very key because it's not only that I don't uh, argue with anybody. If that is my attitude, then I won't stand up for my belief. It's not just about arguing against somebody. It's standing by your own principles. And if it's not something that's objective, then why would I set a line in the stand, in the sand, and then say, I have to stand by these principles, uh, even for what, if my life is at stake. That 
that won't happen in that kind of a world. That's exactly right. That if I won't stand up and speak the truth to someone else who's going down a road of untruth, falsity, lies that is in conflict with God's plan for their lives, for everybody's lives, then why would I stand up for me when that issue comes up? And, and you can think about that in the context of someone who goes to college. And, and maybe that person knows that they shouldn't be drinking to intoxication, especially mm -hmm. as a minor. Mm -hmm. But they don't judge any of their friends who do that and, and never speak up about that. Well, then one night they're at a party with all of their friends and someone hands her a, a glass of beer. Well, why would she not drink that if that's what everybody else is doing? Because she's never stood up for what she believes in. And so it's a very slippery slope for any of us who believe in objective truth if we're not willing to speak about it publicly and to make choices in our lives that reflect that truth. Mm -hmm. And it's not as if, and this is one of the points that we have to keep very clear. This is not just about, well, these opinions are just something that, if, you know, what you hold and what you feel and believe. And feeling is one of the things that you criticize. You know, people making a decision on the basis of the feelings. Usually that's not a good basis. But the other issue is that these are life and death issues. The kid who drinks at a party and then drives home can be putting themselves and or their friends in grave danger. Yes. It's not, this is not arbitrary. And kids who have, uh, you know, so-called sex, uh, gender changing surgeries, cut their life expectancy in half. Mm -hmm. You know, that they'll, that they'll die at half the, uh, the life span of their peers. And this is not just about feelings, it's about life and death in many of these decisions. And it's objective science. You know, we, we know as a matter of scientific fact that number about the, the half of the life expectancy. We know as a matter of scientific fact that the best long-term study that's ever been done on this uh, over in Europe shows that among adults who tried to do that transition and become a sex that was different than their natal sex, which isn't really possible, which is something we could talk about, yeah. that, that their suicide rates increase dramatically from mm -hmm. about 12 times the general population if you have gender dysphoria to over 19 times the general population if you actually go through all of the puberty blockers and the cross-sex hormones and then finally the surgery. And then accompanying that, higher incidences of mental health issues, loss of bone density, heart trouble, and of course, permanent infertility. Uh, so if, if we're not willing to stand up and speak the truth, people go down this road where they're gonna be hurting themselves. And that's mm -hmm. something as Christians that we should never want. And the, the saddest part of this, this story are the detransitioners, the ones who um, had a, a gender identity different than their sex. They tried that transition, realized that they had made a mistake, and then transitioned back. They're called detransitioners. And the, the question that they ask most frequently is, why didn't anybody tell me yeah. that all these terrible things were gonna happen to me that if I went through this and that I'll never be able to put my body back together again? Um, so we, we first of all need to listen to those stories and understand that that's a consequence of following this path. Mm -hmm. But also it should be what inspires us to be courageous to talk about this issue publicly because mm -hmm. I can't imagine something sadder than being approached by a son or a daughter or a relative or a friend after the fact and saying, you knew, why didn't you tell me? Yeah, there, you have a quote in your book that I think is appropriate here. You, you wrote, gender dysphoria 
is the only mental health condition where society urges individuals to align their bodies with their minds rather than their minds with their bodies. And it has, uh, you know, these very serious, often dire and catastrophic effects on bodies. Some, some bodies don't heal from the surgery. They have ongoing in, infections. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it, they, to put hormones into a body that are not appropriate for the body is a, a very dangerous thing to do. Um, I, I'm not the son of a mechanic, and I understand simple things, but... It's like pouring you know, sand in the gas tank. Well, I was thinking of it more like putting gasoline in a diesel engine or diesel fuel in a gasoline engine. Mm -hmm. It's not going to work. No. And this is one of those common sense points that you don't have to be a doctor or a lawyer or a theologian or an expert at all to be able to have conversations with people because there are other mental disorders uh, where people have serious differences between what they feel in their mind and what is true about their body. Anorexia. Yeah, if I think I'm, I'm Napoleon Bonaparte, right. I should be dissuaded otherwise. You should be because you could do all kinds of things that would be dangerous to yourself and other people if you thought that. Or, or you know, very close to many people, anorexia, um, the disorder where someone thinks that they're fat, they're overweight, when really they're not. They may be just right or maybe even too thin or emaciated. And if you loved that person, you would never encourage them to eat less or to go through a surgery where they would be thinner because you know that that causes them harm. And so in all of those cases, 100%, we would encourage them to align their mind with the body, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. There's another dysphoria where people feel that a body part on their body doesn't belong there. And, and this is a, a real thing that can be very serious, that someone has this intense feeling that their right arm shouldn't be on their body. And a doctor would be committing malpractice if they took off that arm. Yeah. And they would certainly not hand the person a tool and encourage them to do it themselves. They instead would send them to counseling so that they could learn to align their mind with the body and not align the body with the mind. So why is it with gender dysphoria, that's the only area that we ask people to go the other way? It doesn't make any sense that you would do that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, again, another quote I, I liked very much from Archbishop uh, Carlson uh, in, in his document on compassion and challenge about reflections on gender ideology. He said there are three philosophies that underlie the transgender movement. First, feelings define our identity rather than our bodies. How you feel is more important than your actual body. Secondly, human integrity means acting on our persistent desires rather than acting on God's plan for us. Thirdly, anyone who does not affirm our feelings and actions hates us. And that's just, you know, the, you know those other principles are not true. Right, yeah, let's unpack maybe each one of those just yeah, briefly. Sure. Um, so starting with the first one, feelings do not define reality. 
reality defines reality. And we have the ability as human beings to reason and use our logic to figure out the material world around us. And it, it makes even less sense in the context of gender ideology because you're asking sometimes a very young child to try to imagine what it would be like to be the opposite sex, even though they have no idea what that feels like, and then compare their feelings to their stereotypes about what those feelings are. So, you know, in the old days, if there was a girl and she liked playing sports and roughhousing and climbing trees and things like that, we recognized that she was a girl who liked to do those activities. And today they would say, well, because those are stereotypically boy activities, if you feel that way, then you must be a boy. You know, so that doesn't make any sense. No. You know, and so then moving to the second piece, um, and, and this is a, a huge one, um, that happiness today is defined as doing whatever I want, whenever I want, if it makes me feel good. And we know that true freedom comes only from following God's will for our lives, which has been carefully prescribed for us in the Bible and through church teachings. Mm -hmm. And that when we, we deviate that from that path, it causes despair, it causes damage, and not just to us, but to other people too. Um, to, to continue with your car analogy, um, we all received a manual in the glove compartment or on our cell phones that told us how to operate the car and maintain it. And that was a, a manual that wasn't created as a series of no's. It wasn't created to restrict your freedom. It was made because the creator of the car understood that if you followed those instructions, that would make the car operate to the best of its ability, the way that its maker intended. And these rules about how to live our life are the same thing, that we can choose not to follow them. We do have that free will, but they're not no's. They're not restrictions on our freedom. They're the blueprint to happiness and to mm -hmm. having fulfilling lives where we can be the best possible version of ourselves. And, yeah. and people need to realize that. Yeah. And the last point, and, and that's why we have so much conflict in the court system right now, uh, because either you're on board with the gender ideology bandwagon or you're considered hateful and bigoted. And th this was demonstrated just glaringly back in 2019 when the Vatican first issued its guidelines for Catholic schools about how to approach the issue of gender ideology. And the document was very clear that no one should ever be bullied or harassed because of a gender dysphoria. We need to be compassionate and we need to mm -hmm. walk with those people. Absolutely. But at the same time, educators in Catholic schools have a duty to recognize the truth of the human body, that we're embodied souls, so our bodies express something about who we are, and that's a gift we can't reject from God. Um, you know, it said all those things very beautifully. And the response within two or three days was a New York Times article which said that the Catholic Church's views are hateful and bigoted. You know, and, and so there you have the whole cultural um, morass boiled down to a, a nutshell. Um, and so we do need to talk about this and explain why the church's loving, uh, loving approach, this blueprint, is what's truly best for human flourishing because that's the only way that we can win hearts and minds on this. In, in the case of the, the transgender uh, person who not only starts taking hormones that are, the, and I, I would say not the correct one for their body, and then they even have surgeries, the reality is that every single cell in that person's body contains the information that they are XX or XY. That in other words, XX, every cell is feminine. Not just, you know, primary and secondary organs for reproduction. And every cell in a, a, a male remains XY. Mm -hmm. You cannot change that. That's why I used the analogy 
of gasoline in a diesel engine that you know a man's body is expecting testosterone to stimulate not just a reproduction response but all sorts of very complicated uh, we had Dr. Van Mater who says that the endocrine system is the most complex in the body. Mm -hmm. And you mess around with the wrong hormones that the, the cells at the cellular level are not expecting. You're asking for physical trouble and people die at, you know, 40 instead of 80. Right. And that's apart from suicide issues that even lowers it further. Right, that's why we see all these terrible effects. And uh, you know, for years, um, you may have heard about the TV show and the children's book that's now in all the elementary school libraries, I Am Jazz. And it's about uh, a young boy who transitioned to a girl at a very young age with parents' full support and encouragement. And when he went through his surgery, he had done the puberty blockers and the cross-sex hormones, mm -hmm. um, the, the surgery was a terrible experience and he experienced intense physical pain for several years after the surgery yes. and is still having medical issues related to that today. But you don't hear much of that being trumpeted on the front page of the New York Times or in other places. You only hear about the success stories and about how happy people are. And you know, because it's a, a psychological dysphoria, sometimes there is in the very short term some um, psychological relief. So the University of Michigan just announced recently that when they do the, the breast removal surgeries for women who want to become men, um, that they did this follow-up study and, and everybody was happy. Well, first, only 60% of people responded. And you can guess the 40% who didn't respond um, most likely didn't have a good experience or they wouldn't be calling or they would, would have responded to the survey. Um, but in addition to that, you have to look at these things over long periods of time. That, yes. That's why that European long-term study is the gold standard because it, it looked at this over a 20 to 30 year period. Mm -hmm. And just like putting the wrong type of gas in the engine, it doesn't matter how you identify the engine, ultimately that's gonna cause problems and things will break down. And yet, the activists are encouraging this intervention at younger and younger ages. In California, mm -hmm. it's built into the curriculum starting at kindergarten to start asking kids about their feelings about gender identity. And uh, there was a, a famous article that the AP published uh, several years ago now, where a supposed expert on gender ideology said that if you had a baby girl and she was trying to pull the barrette out of her hair, that that was her trying to tell you that she's actually a boy. I mean, just absolute nonsense. Um, and yet, you know, the inmates running the asylum are the ones running the gender clinics and encouraging people to go through this. And it's a, a huge moneymaker for them. There's lots of money in cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers. Those surgeries can cost up to $70,000. And now they're persuading governments and employers to cover them through insurance. So, you know, they don't have any reason to stop that gravy train. So but that the taxpayers will have to pay for this. That's happening in many states. And when they do that, it's paying for something that shortens the life of the person. Yes. And, you know, this, as citizens, we have to make our voices known that this is problematic. We're not trying to be mean and hold back money because we're selfish, but it would be like giving $100,000 to a drug user who 
may very well use it to get a drug that will end their life mm -hmm. or do harm to their health. Right. You, you, I wouldn't do that. N none of us would do that because oh, it's not. Be careful. Well, yeah, none of, but most of us wouldn't do that. Anybody watching this show would not do that yeah. because it's not loving. And, and, and that's another problem with societal thought um, and, and church teaching that it's just important to unpack real quick. Um, you know, love today is expressed in books and movies and television shows as a soupy sentiment. It's just a, a feeling. Um, but the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says that love is willing the best for the other person. Yes. And that's what Jesus meant in the Bible. You know, throughout all the Gospels, loving means willing the best for the other person. And, and again, you have children, you have a number of children, and other people in our audience have children. And, you know, kids do go through difficulties. You might have a kid who just absolutely loves baseball and would do anything possible to play, but they're no good. You know, that, that, you know, you can love the game, but you may not be a good athlete. Mm -hmm. And the disappointment of that fact, uh, some things you can make up for, some things you can't. Do you say, well, you know, I'll, I'll just dress you up in baseball uniforms and you, because you identify as a baseball player, even though no team is going to hire you. Right, a, a, you know, a loving that, parent. That, would be, that, that wouldn't make good sense. You help a child work through these images that they have of themselves and then the reality. Right, exactly, because a loving parent would not encourage a delusion, and, and especially a delusion that causes harm. Yes. Uh, you know, so if you had a, a child who desperately wanted to touch the hot stove, that's what they wanted more than anything else in the world. Yes. A loving parent would still never do that because they understand an objective truth, the child doesn't, that if they touch the stove, they're going to get burned and they could be severely hurt. And if they love them, if they want what's best for them, they're not going to let them do it simply because they want to, because they think it'll make them feel better about themselves. Of course, they would protect them. Yes. And, and we need to do the same thing here. Yeah, yeah. And... The, the, some of the effects of this are showing up in courts. Uh, as a matter of fact, just a couple days ago, there was a case that concerned Alabama mm -hmm. that came up. It was in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals uh, that they struck down an injunction against Alabama's Vulnerable Child Protection Act. Do you know much about that? I, I do. We yeah. actually filed uh, an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief in that case, mm -hmm. to explain the medical science behind Alabama's law. And, and Alabama is one of quite a number of states now which have passed these laws. And they say that doctors aren't allowed to give puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones or surgery to minors because of the long-term dangers and also because there's no demonstrated benefit from a medical or psychological perspective. Mm -hmm. And those were immediately challenged by gender activists. They said that these states were taking away um, both minors but also their parents' rights to have their kids go through these treatments. And in the district courts, that's where cases start, um, the laws were immediately enjoined in a number of places. Mm -hmm. um, the, the activists are really good at finding places where judges are willing to go along with, with their point of view, sure. whatever the law might sure. be. Sure. Um, so the Alabama case went to the 11th Circuit. Um, another uh, two injunctions involving Tennessee and Kentucky both went to the 6th Circuit. 
And in both of those instances, the federal appeals court set aside the injunction and said that the law could go into effect while they continue to litigate the case because the laws that had been enacted were within the purview of the legislature and seemed correct. Um, and, so and that was fact, great. Let me quote uh, Judge Barbara Lagoa. Yes, she, she wrote opinion. the opinion yes, for the Alabama case. Exactly, and she said, and I quote, this unproven, poorly studied series of interventions results in numerous harmful effects for minors as well as risks of effects simply unknown due to the new and experimental nature of these interventions. So the, the, the puberty blockers would be a very important thing. Right. You block puberty in a child, it's not just the sexual development. The growth of the child is affected by that. Right. And, and, and growth on so many levels, you know, height, strength, muscle, uh, all these different elements are affected. And you don't know what the, that is. Right. And, and, and to be clear about puberty blockers, there is a valid use for puberty blockers. There's something called precocious puberty, where for social reasons or, or other reasons, a child starts to go through puberty at an age where they're not ready yet, you know, mm -hmm. say at seven or eight years old instead of 11 or 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And so puberty blockers are effective for those types of kids and then they take them off those drugs that they can go and have a normal puberty. It's, it's being used to help them have a healthy body. But right. this use for the, the gender dysphoria is an off-label use. It's never been studied or approved by the Food and Drug Administration as something that's safe to administer to children. And it's doing the exact opposite of helping them have a healthy sexual development. It's trying to prevent their healthy sexual development, even at ages where they should be having increased bone density and increased height, increased musculature, increased maturity of the brain, and all those types of things. And, and so that's why it's not a surprise to us when we, we look at, at Europe. And Europe, people need to understand, that was really where the, the transgender affirmation medicine movement started. Yes. Um, so in places like the UK and Finland and Sweden, Sweden. Um, they, they, they were the first ones to try all this about 20 years ago. And now every single one of them is reversing course. And yep. they're saying, we're not going to do this for minors anymore because there's no proven health benefit, just like the judge said. Um, and in many cases, it's making things worse. And, and that's why it's so sad that here in the United States, the American Medical Association and other national medical and organizations, some of the pediatric, pediatric doctors, they're ignoring the best evidence that we have available about what this is doing to our children because they have their own political agenda. You know, in the same way they and, didn't speak out against tobacco back in the day. Yeah, exactly. As a matter of fact, doc, medical doctors used to be on the commercials for some of the cigarette brands. I remember that. Yes. When I was a little kid, they had doctors smoking saying, this is good for you. <laughs> I don't know, as a kid, we called them cancer sticks. Uh, and that was back in the 1950s. Look, we're, we're, if you want to find out more information on the work of the Alliance Defending Freedom, go to adflegal.org, adflegal.org. You can find out a lot more what they're doing. I uh, heard a speech by the former president of the organization uh, uh, last winter, and that's why we made this contact, because folks need to know more about what's happening.
and what the law can do to change. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes, so please stay with us. Thank you. Again, we're dis discussing very important issues. Uh, there's a, the book that our guest, John Bursch, wrote is called Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology. And John Bursch is the senior counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, it's published by Sophia Press, who usually does a wonderful job. And you can get this book at EWTNRC.com, our religious catalog. It is item number 9363. I recommend it. It's, it brings it down, lays it out, and it's very, very clear. You ready for some questions? I'm ready. I bet you are. And uh, just so folks in the audience know, John has appeared before the Supreme Court 12 times uh, as, as a lawyer. Um, and so he's ready for your questions. Let's start off with Jim in the great state of Rhode Island. Jim, what can we do for you? Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. I sure. Appreciate it. Uh, so I just kind of got more of a broader question here. You know, it just appears that it's nothing within this transgender movement itself it happens to be, you know, organic. It's largely funded. I was wondering if you could tell me what kind of the purpose is. You know, was it transhumanism? Does it go against God's word? Is it more population control? Like, what are your ideas as far as the end game this, of this and kind of why it came about? Yes. Great, yeah. great question, Jim. Thank you. Happy to answer that. Um, I think it has to do with the modern rise of the self. Um, you know, the reason that we have a huge falling off of people attending church and identifying with any religion is because they don't want some ephemeral God telling them what to do, that if I want true freedom, I can decide everything for myself. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with the, the job or career that I'm going to pursue. I'm going to do all that on my own, the relationships I'm going to have, um, you know, who I want to have sexual relationships with, you know, that's all my decision. And finally, too, it, it's up to me to manipulate my own body. So instead of looking at our bodies and our relationships and the entire material world that we live in as a gift from our creator, a gift that should be accepted and honored and nurtured and then grown, everything is just about me. And psychologically then you're, you're setting up walls you know, within your, your mind and blocking out everything else and, and all you care about is yourself. And, and you can see this in the, the gender ideology movement and the way they think about their bodies, but you can kind of see it culturally too. Um, you know, the people who run the red lights and they're speeding on the highway and they steal things from stores and they don't treat other people with respect, it's because it's always about me. Everything is inwardly focused. Mm -hmm. And the ability to control your own body and the, the sex that you are, at least, you know, they, they think that they can do that, is the ultimate ability to be God for yourself. Because then no one can determine anything for me. It's all about me. I get to determine myself and my world and the universe and everything. And, and there's no God 
God present in that because it's all about me. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's a, a book um, called The Rise of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Uh, he is a professor, um, and I'm drawing a blank on the university that he is right now. Um, but, but it's an excellent book that talks about how our modern culture has moved in that direction. And that's one of the things as Christians that it's incredibly important for us to do is to remind people that God does have a plan for our lives and that it's not all about us, that some things are bigger than us and we need to recognize that and be grateful for it. And in many ways, that your, your answer fits what many psychologists have described as a pandemic of clinical narcissism. Yes. That this is a very serious, uh, and I don't use narcissistic in some superficial way. I'm, I'm talking about a, a, a clinical disorder, a psychological disorder that's very difficult to overcome. Oftentimes people don't take the, their narcissism seriously until their 60s and 70s because it takes them that long to figure out that the world doesn't care what they think about them. Slow learners. So we have a, another question. Ma'am, where are you from? I'm from Toronto, Canada. Good to have you. Thank welcome, you. Welcome, welcome. And what is your question? Thank you for taking my question. The question is if you have age limit for say drinking, if it is 18, for driving, if it is 16, why don't we have any age limit in such a destructive field, like the, the people that they are playing God, basically. Yes, that's, yes. That, that's an excellent question. Mm -hmm. And some states are trying to do that now. Mm -hmm. So for example, the, the laws that we were just talking about in Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, some of those other states, they're basically taking the decision away from kids and their parents because it is so dangerous and saying, until you're the age of consent until you're 18, that's not a choice that you can make. You also see it in laws like those that have been passed in Florida, where they're taking those materials out of the curriculum in their schools and saying, kids who, who don't even understand anything about human sexuality in kindergarten, first, second grade, they can't be exposed to these ideas because they're impressionable and they don't have the ability to reason through and, and think about those things. Um, and so we're not gonna allow that to happen. Um, I would hope that eventually there would be a nationwide movement, um, but there are many states that move in the exact opposite direction. We were talking about California and their, their kindergarten, first grade, second grade curriculum. Um, but you know, I, I think when you talk to the, the detransitioners who started to transition during their teenage years in particular, they will tell you that they didn't have the maturity to make a life-altering decision like that yes. where they could never get their bodies back again. And they wish that there had been some kind of a limit in place. And, and it makes no sense why we won't even let someone vote until they turn 18, and yet we'll allow them to completely disfigure their body and go through surgeries that will mutilate them permanently. And so that folks also understand at least uh, one of the reasons given for encouraging puberty blockers and very early hormone treatments is to prevent the body of a person from taking the shape that would naturally occur in a boy or a girl. So that, for instance, the squaring off of the facial structure that happens more often in males would be prevented. They would have a more rounded face and other features would be prevented. 
so that they would look more like the cultural expectations anyway of the opposite sex. And that's why they try to do it so early. But that desire to have a certain look uh, won't matter if you don't live very long to, to have it anyway. Right. So because you're, you're messing around with it. So that's, that's one of the other issues at yeah, stake. Yeah, and maybe just stay with that before the next question because there are two other issues with that too. And one we've already talked about, that the body is coded with DNA and, and chromosomes that will tell the body whether it's male or female, no matter whether you start puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones at a young age or not. And so you can't ever reconcile those two things. That's right. why we have to align the mind with the body, not the other way around. Uh, the other thing, and this is very serious, um, the studies show that for kids who are experiencing dysphoria when they're in their adolescent and teenage years, if they're just left on their own and they're not affirmed, 80 to 95% of them will naturally resolve their mind with their body. But if you start to affirm them, if you start using preferred pronouns and you allow them to dress as the opposite sex and you allow them to participate on the opposite sex sports team and send them to the opposite sex's shower or locker room, then nearly 100% of those kids will persist with their dysphoria, continue to have the mental anxiety, and then go down this road of medical treatment. And so I, I'm often asked the question, well, you know, what, what about pronouns? Why can't we just use someone's preferred pronouns? Isn't that the loving, respectful thing to do? Well, you know, as soon as you're doing that, you're affirming them and you're sending them down one road of this fork. And it's a, a road that leads to misery and long-term harm as opposed to the one that leads to flourishing. You know, so, so even there, we, we can't give in and, and certainly can't give in when it comes to the puberty blockers and the cross-sex hormones. It's just devastating. And there was one study from Boston that apparently suggested that uh, if you don't proceed with the puberty blockers and the hormone treatments, that they'll, that the young person will commit suicide. And so parents are told that and they panic. But that doesn't, you know, really, that, that's not a very well-tested uh, study. No. And what is well-attested is that after they go through this, 42% you know, are likely to try suicide, and many of them will succeed. Yes. So that, it's way higher than what was purported in one study, that if they don't get the puberty blockers, they're way less likely. It's, it's a couple, not even a couple percent, but it's 40-some percent if they do go through it. That's very serious. It is very serious. And that's one of the things that the trans activists will do to scare people. They'll say, do you want a live son or a dead daughter or you know, vice versa? Right. And, and that's a false choice. That's just not true. Yes, it's true, as we discussed, that uh, adolescents, teenagers who are experiencing gender dysphoria. And, and, and just to be clear about that, we're talking about diagnosed dysphoria. We're not talking about a social contagion where a dozen girls in eighth or ninth grade all of a sudden come out as trans yeah. at the same time. Yeah. That's, a, that's a different issue and, and one that's you know, even more important not to allow them to go down this road. But for those who have the, the clinical dysphoria, um, you know, where we can say that it's, it's serious, that they do have higher suicide rates. And so that's why we need to be 
compassionate, empathetic, mm -hmm. to be companions to them, all that. You know, don't even talk anymore, full stop there. You have to be compassionate. But if they go through the transition, it gets worse. Yeah. And, and sometimes the ideologists on the other side will say, well, you know, that, that long-term Swedish study, you can't rely on that, even though it's the most long-term, um, highest numbers uh, control group, you know, best scientific study that we have available, much better than things like the Boston study, which are right. self-selected small sample sizes and those, those types right. of things. But, you know, we, we can't believe that. Well, the Obama administration's Department of Health and Human Services adopted that study to warn people about the dangers of transition over long terms. Which study did they adopt? The, the, the Swedish study. Swedish study, it, yes. It was on the Department of Health and Human Services website um, for a long period of time, recognizing that the suicide rates increased when those adults made a full transition, went all the way through surgery. Um, so you know, t take President Obama's word for it. At the same time that um, he was pushing policies that encourage kids to transition, this is what the expert doctors were saying. Yeah. We have another question from our audience. Ma'am, where are you from? I'm from Mineola, Texas. Good to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. And your question? My question is, practically speaking, what would you advise parents and grandparents to say to their children or how to deal with all of the confusion in the world today? Yeah, thank you for that question, because there, there's a lot that we can do. Mm -hmm. um, so for starters, we, we need to inoculate our kids um, from the transgender propaganda. Um, and that can be difficult to do because it's pervasive. Um, there are transgender videos on TikTok and on Instagram and on other social media platforms that are literally being watched billions of times. Um, and if we're not monitoring our kids' social media, then we're making a huge mistake. Yeah. Um, in the case of our family, um, it was a policy of no social media until they went to college when they were old enough to be able to process those types of things. Um, in addition, we need to carefully monitor the TV shows and the movies and the books that they're watching and reading. Um, one of the examples I discuss in the book is a, a kid's cartoon show called Blue's Clues. It's about a little dog. What? It's intended for three, four, five-year-olds. 20 years ago, our kids were, were watching that. Um, and last year, if you were a parent and you had put your kid in front of Blue's Clues and then gone and done a load of laundry or, or closed your eyes for a few minutes, you would have missed that they saw a pride parade that included 10 floats and they were singing the tune of the ants go marching one by one, but every float was a different LGBT propaganda piece. And one of them was a family of beavers with a young girl beaver who had tape across her chest where she had had her breasts removed. And they're showing that to three-year-olds. So number one thing for parents and grandparents is you've got to stop all that stuff from entering into the house and, mm -hmm. and polluting their minds at a young age. Mm -hmm. um, next, you need to be very careful about what's happening at school. And if you've got a school that embraces preferred pronouns and allowing kids to go into the opposite sex's restroom and on the sports teams and things like that, that ask their kids to identify their gender in, in kindergarten, um, you need to protest to the point where the policy is changed or take your kids out of that school. Mm -hmm. um, you know, homeschooling or a, a private Catholic education um, at a place where they're fully in line with church teaching, um, far better. You know, you're, you're just asking for trouble if you're putting them in an environment like that. You know, and then be conscious of the friends that they're hanging out with, too. Mm -hmm. So as they get older, you know, what, what do you do if you have a child and they, they actually are exhibiting dysphoria? Well, you need to find a good Christian counselor 
who will counsel in accord with the teachings of the church, not someone who will encourage them to go down one of these other roads. Because many counselors and psychologists today, as soon as they hear someone say, you know, I, I think I'm really a, a girl, even though I'm a boy, they'll say, well, you're transgender, um, you've got gender dysphoria, um, here, here's the prescription, you can have the puberty blockers, we'll start you on cross-sex hormones in six to 12 months. You know, there's not even any attempt to explore the underlying issues. And, and for many kids, um, who are experiencing dysphoria, there are underlying mental health issues that go along with that. Um, the many instances of sexual abuse, many instances of broken relationships with moms or dads, um, some instances where grandparents dress them up as the opposite sex because they wanted a granddaughter instead of a, a grandson. Um, kids who are anxious because they're having bad relationships, they're being bullied at school. You know, all of those things could cause feelings of dysphoria. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about kids who are on the autism spectrum, I mean, that, that's a whole nother area of, of concern. You yes. know, one to two percent of the, the population, but 40 percent of the kids who identify as being gender dysphoric. Um, so you need to, to treat all those with a Christian counselor and, and then just have conversations around the family dinner table. You know, it used to be we didn't have to talk about these things, but today we do. Yeah, and one of the factors is uh, that parents are not engaged with their kids. Sometimes, the, many of the situations, the parents are dealing with issues of their own psychological concerns, mm -hmm. depression, etc. And one and the other parent uh, may be disengaged from because they can't cope with their spouse's difficulty and get on the kids, but the kids can't deal with it either. Right, and, and it might and, even be a less serious thing than that. I mean, yeah. I'm sure you've been to a restaurant and you've looked around at the other tables and you've seen the parents with young children and every person at the table is on a device. Yes. You know, even yes. the two-year-old. Yeah. And they're not talking. And if you're not having those conversations with your kids when you go out to eat, you're not having them at home at the dinner table, I mean, how are you going to find out about the distress that they're having at school because they're getting bullied exactly. on the playground? Yeah, they have to talk and listen. I'm afraid that we're running out of time. It's been very interesting, but I want to encourage people to go more deeply into it by taking a look at this book, Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideologies, written by our guest, uh, John J. Bursch, who is the senior counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom. It is available at our religious catalog. That is EWTNRC.com where it is item number 9363. Thank you so much. And there's a lot more to, to talk about, but not today because we're out of time. So may the Lord bless all of you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we can bring Mr. Bursch and all the other guests and all the other programs that we have only because this network is brought to you by you. Mother, was in, Mother Angelica was inspired by our Lord to have it brought to you by you instead of with commercials. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And then we'll be able to pay, pay all of our bills too. God bless you all and thank you very much.